if you would stand with me, we're going to read from, actually we're going to read from 2 Corinthians. Now if you actually get our weekly email newsletter, you expected me to preach from Philippians 3, 7 to 11. But on the, as I was studying for that, I got stuck in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14, 21. So maybe we'll get to Philippians 3, but it's not today. So don't worry if you don't have the Word of God in front of you. It will be up on the screen. Let's start verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Go on to verse 21. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus ends the reading of our sacred word this morning. Please be seated. You know, there's a word in our culture these days, it came out of the sports world, but you find it in the business world and you hear it in politics, and that word is game changer. Game changer. It's the idea that if your team is behind, they got to do something to change the game in order to find victory. And some of you have been yelling at the TV recently, you got to change that game, you got to stop doing those plays and do something new and do something different. Businesses talk about it in terms of strategy, particularly if they are behind in their industry, if they're down, if they're lagging and they want to become leaders, they talk about things that are going to change the game, things that are going to get them to the right place that they want to go. And in politics, any candidate that's running for office, and if they're behind in the polls, they have to think of something that's going to change the game. They have to think of a game changer. In one sense, what we're talking about in this series on the cross, where we talk about Christ's sacrifice producing the hope that we have, you won't find a more significant game changer in all of world history than what Jesus did on the cross. And it doesn't matter how far back you want to go, doesn't matter what invention you want to think about or what discovery, nothing is as significant as what Jesus did on Calvary. He started in weakness. We talked about that last week. And out of that weakness comes the game-changing event of his death and his resurrection. And what did that change for us? It changes from a place of certain death, if you will, of being just in this life for a short period of time when you consider the span of history and having no hope beyond the grave. And some of you know, and some of you have friends, and maybe even yourself Friends that are, frankly, afraid of death. Because they don't know what's, on, what's out there afterwards. They don't think there is or they're afraid of what they might find. But Jesus' death and resurrection showed us the way to life. Gave us a hope and a future. Changed the game for us. We have now eternal life 
but only in him. And so Paul is talking, when he writes the Corinthians, Corinthians, he's on the other side of the resurrection at this point. And he's trying to explain to them the fullness of what it actually meant for Jesus to go to his death and be raised again on the third day. And so we're going to consider, as we unpack this message, I think he speaks to them in three significant ways. He first tells them that they actually have a new purpose. The old is gone. There's something new here. There's a new purpose. Secondly, he says what Jesus did for us gives us a new perspective. We don't see people the same way we used to see them. We should be looking at people in different ways through Jesus' eyes. We have a new perspective. And then the third thing he's teaching us is that we have a new practice. We actually have something specific to do that comes out of that purpose that he's given us. To be reaching into the world as his ambassadors. Those are the elements that I see contained in this passage that we've just read. So what does it mean to have a new purpose? Look at verse 15 if you've still got your Bibles open. If not, I'll read that. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You know, oftentimes, if you, when you think about the resurrection, you think of it in terms of what Jesus did on the cross, and it says that he died for our sins. He was an atoning sacrifice who died for our sins, and not only just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. It's kind of a rough paraphrase of 1 John 2, too. But the idea of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, yeah, that's what God did for us. But sometimes we're tempted just to leave it there. Okay, he's a toning sacrifice. What difference does that make in the way I live? And Paul is answering that question. He says, it makes all the difference. It says, he says, you no longer live for yourselves, but you now live for Jesus who died for you. You know, a good way to explain that is the cross claimed the life of Jesus for us. And now the cross claims our life for Jesus. We cannot escape that. That is our destiny. That is why he died. We owe everything to him, our very lives, says Paul. And so that's the new purpose. Rick Warren, who talked about, actually wrote about something called The Purpose Driven Life. Many of you have read it. It's a bestseller, over 30 million copies. It's been around for, I think, about 25, 26 years at this point. It's changed a lot of lives, a lot of churches. And he starts his book with this line. It is not about you. My purpose in life, the new purpose that God gives me, is not about me. It's about his leading. It's about his lordship. See, this is something that the Corinthian church hasn't, hasn't picked up on. They try to have a foot in both camps. They want one foot in the kingdom of God, and they want one foot still in Corinth. They want to have Jesus as Savior, but they're not so sure about whether they want to live under his lordship. And so Paul is going down the catalog in his first letter to the Corinthians of all the things that this results in, because you cannot live in two kingdoms at once. And he tells them, he writes this to them. There's just a, if you know your first Corinthians, you'll know there's a variety of things he, he writes them up for, so to speak. Verse chapter three says, you guys prefer some leaders just based on giftedness or their resume. You're making human distinctions rather than godly ones. In verse five, he says, you guys are tolerating practices that would make non-believers blush. You guys are so, so far removed from that. Chapter six, he talks to the, Talks about sexual immorality that's still being practiced even amongst members of the church body. In chapter 10, they're wrestling with ethical issues about whether they can eat meat sacrificed to idols. In chapter 11, they're violating the spirit of communion that we just took in by not waiting for one another. They're abusing the meaning of communion. 
In chapter 12, they suddenly are making distinctions about one another, saying, this guy is better than that guy just based on his spiritual gifts. Verse, in chapter 13, they're just, you know, Paul's telling what love really looks like, that love is patient, love is kind. And it doesn't matter how gifted you are, if you don't have love, you're missing the entire thing. Chapter 15, chapter 15, we, they're, some of them aren't even believing in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has a very expansive chapter on what the resurrection is and means. If some of you are talking with friends, by the way, over this Easter time about whether Jesus rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 is your place to go. Because Paul spent a lot of time with the Corinthian church, walking them through how that's a reality. So Paul's going down the list with the Corinthians because they got a foot in the kingdom and they got a foot in the world. They want Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to live with him as Lord or they don't understand what that means or they're trying to, you know, they're slow walking through that piece. Sometimes we're like that. Isn't that true? Sometimes we want to have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Do you know that Jesus as Savior in the New Testament is listed 24 times? But Jesus as Lord, references to him as Lord, are over 600 times in the New Testament. What do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us through that? It's all about how am I living my life? That I'm living it for him who died for me. That that is my new purpose. Now, we don't always get that. We kind of sort of are like the Corinthians at times. And we try to be in both worlds. And if we're honest, sometimes that's not... You know, the reason we get to that place is because we're listening to the enemy. Because the enemy tries to tell us that the old world, the old life that we came from, actually is still attractive. Still has some things that we like about it. And he gives us a scrapbook. Like the thing that he gives us a scrapbook. This is your life. Everything that you liked about your old life, I put it in here. Let's open it up. What do you see? Maybe just starts with some innocent trips down memory lane. Photos of yourself way back when. You look at that and you're like, man, I can't believe I wore bell bottoms. And you look at it a little closer, I can't believe they were plaid bell bottoms. But that's where it was. Or, how, why did we wear our hair like that? Then I thought that would be forever, but I'm certainly glad it's not. You know, we're appreciative of the change. He just gets us started thinking about the way it used to be. And then he shows us things that we used to like about that old life. Stuff that appealed to our old mind, what the Bible calls the flesh. Maybe that was a good time to party. Maybe that was, maybe you had more money before you were tithing and it shows you a bank statement. Man, man, I had an account that had some money in it. Now I don't ever since I came to the Lord. Things have been really changed around. Maybe you get a picture of a nice car that you once had. That you probably couldn't afford, but you had it anyway. He's like, oh, but that was good. Maybe he's showing you a picture of an old girlfriend or old boyfriend. But you're married. He wants us to go back to the old life. That's the front part of the scrapbook that he gives us. But you know there's a back part of the scrapbook. The part that our flesh doesn't like. The part that says restricted access. And that's the stuff our flesh hates. That's the things that hurt us in our own human way. It's the rejection letter from the employer that we wanted to get a job with. Or the college that we wanted to go to. It's the divorce decree that says that marriage that we wanted to last for a lifetime is over. It's the family picture without dad in it. It's those things that cause us pain and cause us hurt. And when the enemy shows us those pages of our very own scrapbook, 
He's trying to convey the message that you don't matter to Jesus. That your life won't count, that it's not important, that you really don't have a purpose that amounts to much, and it's all you can do to kind of struggle through this life. End of story. Two things he tries to hit us with in the scrapbook. Get off track by going back to the old ways, kind of like the Corinthians, or stay in that place of not believing that your worth amounts to anything because of all the stuff that has happened to you. So what does your scrapbook look like? What's in it? More importantly, what do you do with it? Here's what you do with it. Because the enemy wants you to carry that scrapbook around. He wants you to open it up page after page. Some of you wake up in the morning and you're already in the back section thinking about how less worthy you are than what God says you are. And you're just, if you're honest with yourself, you're looking at that page and you're looking at that page. Jesus says, let's fold that up. Jesus asks, will you give that to me? And if you say yes to that, you take that scrapbook, no matter how big that is, and you take it and you lay it at the foot of the cross. He will not grab that scrapbook from you. He will receive it if you offer it. He will tell you that you don't need it. And in fact, it tells you nothing that's true about yourself. So you've got to leave it with him. And you know what he will give you in return? You can imagine the number of things that the Lord might give you. But that symbol that so many people wear now, uh, oftentimes they just consider it jewelry, but we in the kingdom of God do not. And that is the cross of Christ. Do you have a cross that you wear? Do you have a cross that's in your home or something like that? That symbol says so much. It says, just as Paul was talking about in the passage we just read, I died for you that you have value and inestimable worth. Nothing can take that away. You have new identity in me, is what he's saying. You've got new power to overcome any of that stuff in the scrapbook. Some of it can be overcome right away. Others will take a little bit longer and some a lifetime. But you have the power. And finally, you have the protection that you need. So nothing can come against you but what I allow and what I've already figured out in your life. New purpose comes with that. Don't let the enemy get you off that new purpose. Don't let him dissuade you. If you've got a scrapbook that you keep opening up, give it to the Lord. Receive the symbol of his cross over your life. And if you're still wondering, I would say to you that the the life of purpose that God gives us is really the only life that's worth living. There will come a time where each of us will be before the Lord. And 1 John tells us, and we will see him as he is. If we could see Jesus today in all his glory, all the things that distract us, from loving Him and living for Him and living full on for that new purpose, we would just, we would count as rubbish, says Paul. He says, whatever was to my gain, I count as rubbish for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord and being found in Him. If we could see Jesus as He really is in all His fullness, if we could see Jesus as we will see Him, it would change more and more how we live our lives. We would be more and more in touch with the purpose that he gives us. And so, when we see the Lord like that, it'll change our lives. When uh, the, the life lived under the purpose of Christ is the life that comes with the, the best reward that you can have, which is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Which is to see people who are in heaven because of what you did, because you reached out to them, because you gave of your resources. They're in heavenly dwellings, says the gospel. 
because of you. That's the whole parable of the unrighteous steward. What you do on earth matters for time and eternity. And that's the only life worth living. So God gives us new purpose. Will we grab hold of that or are we still going to live like the Corinthians were? This is why Paul was so concerned with this. So we have new purpose in that. The Lord gives us a remedy. He takes that scrapbook from us if we give it to him. And we praise him for that. We do have a hope and a future. By the way, purpose is common to all of us. All of us have that purpose of living a new life in Christ. But not all of us have the same calling. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are doctors. Some of you are students. Some of you are... We have different occupations. A calling is something that you do for the Lord unto him by his power to glorify him and to share his love with other people. So it's not only related to your job or your profession. If you're a married person, your calling is to be a loving and faithful spouse. If you've been blessed to be a parent, then your calling also includes being a parent, raising up children in the way of the Lord. If you all of us have some kind of neighbors around us, so that's a calling as well to be God's vessels of love and mercy right in the place that you're planted. We have a variety of callings. Not all of them are the same. That's okay. That's how God does it. But all of us have the same purpose. And that purpose is to live our life as unto the Lord, as fully as we know how. So he gives us a new purpose. Second thing he gives us, he gives us a new perspective. Verse 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new has come. And so, Paul's saying, because you're in Jesus, you don't see people the way you used to. We can think back, and some of us are probably still struggling with, seeing people the way the world sees them. How does the world see them? The world sees others through its own self-centered lens. What can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? We hear those kinds of things. If you love me, I'll love you back. If you hurt me, I'll pay you back. That's how the world sees things. But how does Paul tell us to see things? Paul says, you know, we, we humble ourselves that others might be built up. But the world says, I build myself up at your expense. The world says, I'm superior because you're inferior. And they pick out some kind of criteria about inferiority. You're a different age, or you're a different stage, or you're a different race, or you have less money, or you have some different degree of education. You're different. You're inferior, so I'm superior. But the way of the cross, what Jesus modeled is the most inferior thing that one could do. The most humiliating thing turns out to be the game changer of power that all of us needed. And so he asks us, who now live for him with new purpose, to do the same. And so we can. Now the Corinthians aren't necessarily understanding this. This is why Paul is exercised. He says, you guys are still using worldly criteria. You're still evaluating people in your body of Christ based on worldly criteria. And this is causing problems. How many of you have been surprised at some time in your life where God brought a brother or sister in, the Christ, in Christ into your life to bless you in a specific way? And they were different than you, they were different age, or they were different background, or maybe you didn't think they had a whole lot to offer you. And suddenly, in God's own time, he arranged them to be alongside and to say a particular word of encouragement, provide some provision that you needed. You go, wow, I never would have guessed that, that you would have done that for me. 
This is God arranging his, his children in his kingdom to bless one another, not based on what we see, but based on what he sees. And so this is what Paul wants to understand. He wants the Corinthians to see this, to see this. Don't look at people the way the world looks at them. See them for who God has made us. He's made us as new creations. We're different people. We are differently made now. Everybody's a new creation. That means they are entitled to the love that God gave us. If God gives you something, he wants you to pass it on. If you're filled with the love of the Lord, he wants you to extend that to somebody else. Because they are made in his image just as you are. He died for them just as much as he died for you. They're created in love. We are created out of his love. And we're created for his love. Now, if we're honest, let's be honest. Let's be honest. That's hard to do sometimes. How many of you have people who are hard to love in your life? All right. Some of us have a hard to love cabinet. I picture a, a glass cabinet. And, and you, there's people that are, you have a shelf called hard to love. And somebody who always needs the last word in your conversations, their picture goes in the cabinet right there. Hard to love. Somebody who won't do their chores around the house or won't, you know, lift up their part of the deal, you know, who's in your circle. They're in the hard to love cabinet too. We've got another shelf above that. That's called the harder-to-love shelf. Now, who's in the harder-to-love shelf? Those are the ones that are where you've got to persevere a little bit more. Some of you parents know, I love my child, but I'm telling you, they are harder to love than I ever thought. Harder to raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Where does that come from? It must come from her side of the family. Harder to love. But we put them up on that shelf. And then there's the top shelf called hardest to love. Who's the hardest to love in your world? Oftentimes that's somebody who's hurt you, wounded you significantly or deeply. And you don't even want to look at that picture. But it has to go up there anyway. Put them right up there. So you've got a cabinet full of portraits, cabinet full of photos of people that are hard to love, harder to love, and hardest to love. What do we do with that? Even as Christians, what does God want us to, what's he calling us to do with this new perspective that he gives us? Something that's helped me in this area comes out of 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus stands between you and every other human relationship and between you and God the Father. He mediates He's helping you navigate what that means. He's helping you navigate every relationship you have right now on this earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany in the 20s, 30s, was martyred in 1945 for his faith because he opposed the Nazi regime. He wrote this in in a book called The Cost of Discipleship, talking about Jesus as, as mediator. He says, Jesus stands between us and God. And for that very reason, he stands between us and all other people and things. He is the mediator, not only between God and people, but between every person, between every person and their reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, Jesus is the sole mediator in the world. And since his coming, man has no immediate relationship of his own anymore to anything, neither to God nor to the world Christ wants to be the mediator. And if you just think this is kind of a fancy German theologian, let me put a little gospel on you. Luke 14, 26. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's Bonhoeffer talking about? What, what, what is he referring to when you think about the passage, the verse we just read in Luke? Here it is, that Jesus has first priority over every relationship you have. That Jesus should be the one, the risen Jesus, the powerful Jesus, the all-wise and almighty Lord, should be the one that you talk to about every relationship that you have. Not only the people in the cabinet, the hard-to-love cabinet, but also the people easy to love, the people you really love. Sometimes we can do things that don't help that relationship either. Why? Because we're not talking to the Lord. We're not seeking Him out. And that's not only true for people, it's true for reality. How do I see the situation I'm in at work, Lord? How do I see the times? How do I see anything that's coming against me? Lord, how do I think about that? What do you want me to do in that situation? Jesus is the mediator in those places. How do I think about myself? If you're struggling with that back part of the scrapbook, Jesus has some things to say to you about how you see yourself. Let him mediate. Let him heal. Let him embrace. Let Jesus do those things that he has always wanted to do, is ordained to do, is designed to do, designed to do. See others in a new way. See yourself in a new way. See others, yourself, your reality through the Lord's eyes. That's why he died. His risen resurrection tells us that. Remember that whatever situation you're in, whatever relationship you're in, there's always one more than you can see. So Romeo and Juliet, it's Romeo, Juliet, and Jesus. I'm okay with dating, but it's just not two of you. It's three of you on that date. If it's you and your aspiration to be the CEO or something, it's not just you and your aspiration. It's you, your aspiration, and Jesus. If God gives you promotion, God gave you the promotion. Don't ever get out ahead of him. When we want things that he doesn't want, we are in trouble. We might like them for a time, but eventually they will overtake us and derail us from the place that he has intended for us. It's not just you and the kids, whether it's parents or grandparents. It's you, the kids, and Jesus. We don't dare live this life without him involved. We don't dare look at others without understanding how he wants us to see them. And isn't that what really gives life in our relationships? When you see people as Jesus sees them, and you start to call that out in their life in a positive way, you're making a big difference. Any teacher will tell you that if, they're, if they know the Lord and they see things in a young person's life, they see them before the young person does. And so part of their God-given role is to call that out, to identify that, to encourage it, to develop it. Hugely beneficial. When you see people as Jesus sees them, they can start to heal. Anybody in a recovery situation will tell you that. That part of recovery isn't that you let a person continue to be defined by their, by their addiction, by their old life, but you start to speak into them their new life, the way that God had meant them to be. That's recovery. That's allowing the love of the Lord to be transformational. That's seeing people as God sees us. That's seeing people with a new perspective. Let's look at the third thing we're looking at today, which is the new practice. 
I'm looking at verse 18 now. What's the new practice that God gives us? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Why don't I start with verse 18? All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's the new practice that God's giving us here? It is the practice of reconciliation. To reconcile is to restore to friendship or harmony. Jesus says, I now, before he, in, in the upper room, he said, I now call you friends. This is the exhortation that the Apostle Paul is giving the Corinthians. He says, you guys, you've been trying to live a foot in the kingdom and a foot in the world. And I want you to be reconciled fully to God so that you're living all full on in his kingdom. Be reconciled. The word says, begging. Is sort of the, the best way to look at that. As a good pastor, he's like, you guys got to come over here because this is the life that you were meant for. This is the new perspective, the new purpose that you're supposed to have. So he's urging them to do that. And some of us just need to hear that, to be taken fully into the kingdom. This is where the Lord wants you to reside. You can't have dual citizenship. Got to be in the kingdom. But then he also says, he gives a little autobiographical statement about who he is, his ministry team. He says, we are like Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled. I think that's an interesting image. And I believe that the new practice that God gives us is to be ambassadors of reconciliation. To encourage and pray for and be alongside of people that they would start to understand what it means to be experiencing the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know his power in their lives to achieve the breakthroughs that they need in order to live the life that he's originally planned them to live. We need to be those ambassadors of reconciliation. But what is, what's an, what is an effective ambassador? I think there's a few things that a good ambassador does. First, he knows what country he's from. You know, you can't be an ambassador for the kingdom if you're living in the world. You can't be an American ambassador if you're from France. You cannot be an ambassador for the kingdom if you're living in Corinth. Some of us need to, to get our bags packed, get out of Corinth, get on the train, and get over to the kingdom so that we can be effective ambassadors of reconciliation. The other thing that an ambassador does, an ambassador represents the country's interest, not their own. Second Peter tells us this. Excuse me. First Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, other translations say as aliens and strangers, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. If you're going to be a good ambassador for the kingdom of God, you've got to watch out for the pull, the gravitational pull of Corinth in your life. It wants to take you back. Somebody's going to, enemy's going to try to get that scrapbook back and hand it to you again. Talk to you about that. These wage war against your soul, says First Peter. But the good ambassador represents his king's interests and not his own. Finally, a good ambassador is faithful to his calling and does nothing to discredit it. He's not hypocritical. If you're an ambassador of a country that's against corruption, but you take bribes, 
You're discrediting your country. Hypocrisy is the term for that. And actually, hypocrisy and judgmentalism are often cited by those who do surveys of why young people in particular leave the church. Because they look around and they see too many people from Corinth claiming to be from the kingdom of God. And they go, there's hypocrisy there. And they're still making distinctions among one another based on what the Corinthians were doing, based on earthly, worldly criteria. So there's judgmentalism there. Hypocrisy, judgmentalism. The top two things why young people today don't go to church. And if we would be people that are going to be reconcilers, if we're going to be a church that welcomes people back into that, into the life that's really in Christ, we have to show that life ourselves. We have to be reconcilers. Now, I think there's a lot of good things that go on in this church. I continually hear, even in this season, people saying, I love coming here. There's a spirit of love. There's a spirit of graciousness. There's a spirit of welcome. And it's amazing what God has done. We are from different backgrounds, ages, stages, places, experiences, all that. We're from those different places. And yet, God has brought us together. We didn't do that. We didn't decide to have this multicultural thing called abundant life. But we realized, each in our own way, that we have something far more in common called our heritage in Jesus Christ than anything that would possibly separate us. And so we come together as brothers and sisters and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing here. There's already reconciliation of a kind going on just by that. And I don't think that's changing. I think that's developing, being furthered by the Lord's Spirit as we seek to be reconcilers. Are there some people that you need to reconcile with? We've got to walk that walk. Is there somebody in your cabinet of hard to love that you need to kind of pull their picture out of it and say, you know what, I've got to do some business with that person? Is reconciliation something that we find in the Bible? Yeah, I think it's all over the pages of Scripture. I think the first time, one of the first ways we encounter it is in the whole uh, story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis, Genesis 25. If you know that, you know that Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And even though God had prophesied that the younger would, excuse me, the older would serve the younger, nevertheless, the actual experience of that was pretty hard. Esau is described as ruddy. He is a man of the open country. He's a huntsman. You know, he's a man's man, basically. Drives a Ford F-350. And Jacob, the one who was born right after he was, is described as a quiet man who lived among the tents. Not an outdoor guy. A clever guy. Drives a Prius. And so you have some really different guys that are brothers, and they're not getting along very well. What do we see? What do we hear happen? First of all, we see that Jacob connives to take the birthright from Esau. Esau comes in a long hunting trip. He's exhausted. He wants food. Jacob conveniently has something on the front burner, cooking it up. It's stew. Esau asks for it. Jacob says, I'll essentially sell it to you for your birthright. Now, birthright was a big deal. Birthright gave the oldest son twice as much as anybody else got. It was a way to say that the oldest son in Bible times had all the Jews, had all the resources, most of the resources, in order to be in that leadership position. But Esau is so hungry that he doesn't care about it. And so he says, great, I'll trade you my birthright for one meal. 
pot of stew. Worst deal in recorded history, according to the Bible. And later on, Esau regrets it. He, he sees Jacob as having tricked him and taken that from him. But it doesn't stop there. Jacob, with the help of his mom now, conspires later on to steal Esau's blessing. How does he do that? Well, Isaac was to give a blessing. But in Bible times, the blessing was a big deal, very significant. When the patriarch of the family was about to pass on, he would take the firstborn again and bless them. And that was to speak into reality a sense of power over that person so that he would be the head of the family, a sense of prosperity so he'd have enough to take care of all the clan, and protection, power, prosperity, and protection. Being spoken of as a blessing, Isaac intended to give that to Esau. Rebekah and Jacob intended Jacob to have it. And so you know the story that he tricks Isaac, whose sight is failing, and so he thinks it sounds like Jacob, but it feels like Esau. So he gives Jacob the blessing by mistake. And in that text, there's so much drama because as soon as he blesses Jacob by mistake, Esau comes in from another hunting trip, made the great meal that his dad likes, and his dad says, I don't have another blessing for you. In that moment, Esau realizes his future has changed irrevocably. It doesn't matter. He's not in touch with the prophecy that his mom had, that that was God's plan. He's only in touch with the fact that his brother just stole something of significance, stole his future and his livelihood. And that's why it tells us that he harbored a grudge against him. And while he waited for his dad to die and go through the period of mourning, and then it was going to be payback time, and payback was total payback. He's going to go murder him. And, and Rebecca, being the smart mom that she is, says, time for you to get out of town, son. Time to catch that greyhound and... Go over to Uncle Laban's. And so he does. Jacob flees the land. He goes to his uncle's where he spends the next 20 years. Marries Leah and marries Rachel. Has his 12 kids. Grows to be quite prosperous. And then God tells him, go back to the land of your fathers. Like, uh-oh. But, but, but Esau's in the land of my fathers. But he's heard from God and so he goes back. But being the smart guy that we know him to be, he, and the fact that he realizes he's going to encounter his brother, and the last time he talked to him was going to murder him, he tries to soften him up. He sends you know, herdsmen after herdsmen with all kinds of gifts in the form of livestock. And he just doesn't send one herd and say, here you go, bro. Uh, sorry, my bad. He sends wave after wave. And they're just going to Esau. And Esau is just seeing you know, one herd after another, and they're all telling the same thing. They're saying, your brother Jacob is humble, is sorry, wants you to know that things have changed. And so they come back and they tell Jacob, hey, good news, your brother's coming to you. Hey, bad news, he's bringing 400 guys with him. That's exactly what the text says, not the good news, bad news, but that Esau was coming with 400 men. And it says that Jacob had fear. You would have fear, too, if you treated somebody like that. If you stole their livelihood, stole, stole something that was so important to them, you're like, I mean, I expect to be pretty messed up by them. So there's the scene that comes in chapter 33 where Esau and Jacob meet. And when Jacob meets Esau, he falls face down and he bows down seven times. It is a spirit of abject humility that's being communicated in that moment. It is Jacob saying, I, you are my Lord. I submit to you. By extension, I'm trying to make up for what I did. And it is the first time that Esau has ever seen Jacob in this light that we're aware of. 
All the other times, all the years before, he's tricky. His name means deceiver. He's always got the better of his older brother. And this is the first time he's seen his little brother do something different. And so it says that they embraced, that he hugged his neck, that he kissed him, and they both wept. Is that a picture of reconciliation that you still think is possible today in your lives and in your situations? Is there somebody in the cabinet of hard to love that needs to have that kind of connection? I don't know where where you're identifying with that story. Maybe you identify with Jacob. Maybe you've hurt somebody badly and you need to make amends. Now, those of you that are in recovery know that make amends is a key part of the 12 steps. It's, it's actually step nine. But here's, here's a pastoral kind of um, check on that. And when it says when you make direct amends, it says make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So some things have gotten so far down the road that to actually come and you know, jump in with a phone call, an email or drive by their house would just be weird and wrong. It's okay. Bear in mind that when Jacob went to connect with Esau, it's because God told him to go back to the land of his fathers. So if God's not telling you, it's okay. There's just some situations where to be in there to actually try to make amends would create more harm and more pain. And so it's okay. You can give that to the cross. But for most of us, I think there's a lot of relationships that need that kind of connection. That need you to be like Jacob and humble yourself and say, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I took that. I'm sorry I really messed you over. I, for the first time, I'm in touch with that. You can be in touch with that because Jesus was in touch with his pain. And he, went, he took it to the Father. You know, when Jesus is on the cross, and this is for you Esau's in the room. Some of you are on the Esau side where you're like, I have been so messed over by somebody. And I don't think I could ever forgive them. I mean, I know that Jesus forgave me, and I'm working on it. But sometimes, when we're really honest, we're kind of sneaky with that. We're not really working on it. We're just putting it on pause. I got, my, I got my forgiveness on pause. And I'm not sure when I'm going to release that button. So I want you to release the button in the Lord and say, when do I go and forgive somebody? You know, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was in the middle of intense pain. In agony. But in that moment, he's directing all his attention to his heavenly father. Some of you may be in the middle of intense pain and agony or even a minor version of that. Or you were some years ago or some months ago, but it's still working on you. That's what you focus on. That pops out of your scrapbook. But do as Jesus did and look to his heavenly father. And it's only in that connection vertically that he was able to love those around him. So don't try to do it on your own. You can't do it. You know, let Jesus model that for you. So if you're Jacob or if you're Esau, find your place and ask God, the great mediator, to help you in that time. Ask him to go before you, just like Jacob did, sending wave after wave to soften that person up, whatever that is, whatever touch that person needs. And for most of us, the kinds of relationships that are fractured, typically the everyday stuff. Some of you are going tomorrow to work and there's that colleague that keeps working your nerves. Won't do their job or is always taking your idea or something like that. Or some of you have a family member that just, you know, they're in that cabinet for a reason. 
But you've got to start working out that reconciliation. When you do that, that is the most, one of the most attractive things we can do. To be reconciled to God and then to see that reconciliation permeate throughout your relationships. People will drive hundreds of miles to experience that. They will say that the Lord is here among us. They will say that I can't believe how you've changed. But it starts with getting in touch with the fact that God has given us a new purpose. And all that stems from the work that Jesus did on the cross. And all the power is testified to by his resurrection. So we have a new purpose. He gives us a new perspective we cannot see, cannot afford to see people any longer the way we used to. It's just stuck in that cabinet. Static, not changing. But we have to see them with the love and the forgiveness and the grace that God's given us. And if we can't, let's get in touch with that. When Jesus died on the cross, the the curtain was torn in two. That means that we have access to everything we need from our Heavenly Father to do that. See people with a new perspective. And as as God is filling you with that, you can begin to do the new practice. That practice of reconciliation. The practice of walking out what you talk about. When you live that out in your job and in your family, lives will be transformed. And many of them will be transformed that you never see or hear about. Let's be people with a new purpose, who live out with a new perspective and a new practice. If we do that in our own lives and we do that as a church, we will see the Lord's Spirit be poured out. And this place and your life will never be the same. Amen? Amen.